Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. There is a presence of God here this morning. So that means he's up to something. He wants to speak to you. He wants to release you. He wants to, whatever you need today, let him do it. I'm not supposed to be up here. Chris was scheduled to be here. At about five o'clock yesterday afternoon, he called and said, Dad, all the babies are sick. They're throwing up. All of them. And I, I was, so I started praying and we started, you know, we sent out to the intercessor team, God help them. What else do you say, you know? I went over and brought, took him some food and kind of backed away. I didn't want any. Um, and then I called Chris this morning on the hope that a miracle would have occurred. He said, Dad, I'm sick now. So here I am. I always have a message in my back pocket. So here's my back pocket message, but you're going to like it. Goes along with how we, what we sang today. Um, I do want you to get ready. There was an explosion in the prayer room. I felt it when I came into the, the room today. God is wanting to set something up. Now let me tell you what he said. I woke up from my sleep on Friday night. Now you remember when I did the message on it's all about the seed. I'm waking up, and I'm, I keep telling you, I, he keeps speaking to me when I, when I go to sleep or when I wake up. I woke up, in fact, in my dream. He said, I am beginning to eliminate those who destroy the seed. I am, I am beginning dealing with them and destroying their works. All day long I contemplated that. I said, go, Lord, go do it. Lord, judge and eliminate those who would destroy our seed. They're of Satan the devil. So I have a message for you today. Not along that line, but even bigger. I want you to get prepared and get ready. Before I do that, I'd like to congratulate Avery Williams. Avery, are you here? Stand up, Avery, stand up. Avery, now don't clap yet. You don't even know what you're clapping for. Avery was drafted in the fifth round to the Atlanta Falcons from Boise State. Avery, congratulations. God bless you.
So, Avery, we're going to do the same thing we did for you before you leave. We, we prayed over Curtis, remember, last year? We're going to pray over you before you leave. So make sure the Sunday before you leave, or some Sunday in the next few weeks, or before you get going, we're going to pray over you, okay? God bless you. We're really proud of you, Avery. And not just for what he's accomplished, but for who he is. He's a real fine young man. All right. Is that it, Lord? Father, we just pray right now for a, an anointing upon your word that will capture our hearts. And Lord, that you will do things in us we've never seen done before. You will move in our hearts. You will stir our faith. And you'd make us believers like we've never been before. Do something great. In Jesus' name, amen. This message is for you, is for the nation, and is for the world. I want you to apply this to your life and to what we're going through right now nationally, personally, even worldwide. I'm going to take you to the book of Psalms. And I want to start with asking you a question. Have you ever had a dark night of the soul? A time when you had no hope? The nightmares seemed to persist in your life. Even a time when your tear ducts wouldn't stop. And life itself seemed to be ending. It is for these times that the book of Psalms was written. The Psalms are dotted and drenched with more tear stains than any other part of the Bible. The book of Psalms is the hymnal of the Old Testament. Music is a direct portal into the soul of man. If you want your soul to change, get music that goes in. It opens, it's almost like a, goes into the veins of your soul and cleans out all the dross. Every conceivable emotion from ecstasy to anger to despair can be found in the pages of the Psalms. Many of the most beautiful verses ever written are gathered together in this collection of hymns and songs of the kingdom of Israel. What Paris's Louvre Museum is to art, the book of Psalms is to poetry. The message of the Psalms is that our pain is real, but God's presence is more real. The Psalms also bear witness to the fact that we aren't the first to walk down the difficult roads of disappointment, persecution, trouble. In Psalms, we find hope in the time of storm. Even when the lightning and thunder come roaring, we find help when it seems that life has dealt us a death blow. And in reading the book of Psalms, we feel as if our story has been recorded before we ever lived it. If the problems have then been there before us, 
then the solutions must be there too. There probably is no more powerful healing balm than the wisdom we find in this book, which is positioned, incidentally, strategically, in the very middle of the Bible, the heart of the Bible. Whenever I've suffered, the Psalms have provided my medicine. When I've been wounded, these Psalms have bandaged me and pointed me toward my healing. The simple and heartfelt words that are penned in the Psalms always seem to be enough. I don't know about you, but I've drunk deeply of them. I've even taken baths in them in a sense. I've let them wash over me until I have felt like the dust of the world just washes away and hope and peace in the presence of God comes upon me. As I've read the Psalms, there have been times that I've wanted to go further beneath the surface and understand something about the pen and the writer of that psalm, the context, the problems that inspired the songs of the psalms. I have the same desire when I hear a hymn. I have three books in my library. All three books tell a story about a hymn that was penned. For instance, It Is Well With My Soul. If you know the story of it as well with my soul, a, a man's family is crossing the Atlantic and the ship goes down and they're all drowned. When the man comes across the Atlantic, comes to the very, he's in a ship, he comes across at the very point his family perished, he penned the words, it is well with my soul. Puts a whole different spin on it. What is it that inspired the writer? What situation in life was the writer encountering? encountering? And when, when you find out what the composer is going through at the time of the writing of the hymn, it always puts a song in a whole new realm. It's the same way with the Psalms. We kind of get a backstage pass and discover what was happening in David's life or Solomon's life or Moses' life or what Israel was going through when a psalm was penned. And therefore, the words and the music of these pieces seem to come alive with a new meaning if you know the story behind it. I'm going to go to the story behind it. I'm going to take you to Psalms 46. Don't go there yet. I'm going to tell the story, and then I will read the psalm. The year is 701 B.C. The king of Assyria is a man whose name strikes terror in the hearts of those who live in the Mediterranean world. His name was Sennacherib. He is obsessively intent on expanding his kingdom, which has rapidly arisen to dominance. He has led his army on a ruthless march throughout the Mediterranean world, and now he is headed south towards Judah. Like a swarm of locusts, the dreaded Assyrian army has consumed and conquered everything in its path. Before them, the fields were green or golden with grain. Behind them, the ground is bare and swept clean. Among the rising and falling dynasties of the world, this empire is probably the most cruel and ruthless of all of them. They were merciless 
in their drive through these nations. Before then, the great cities of Syria and Israel and the outposts of Judah stand strong and sturdy, built of native stone. And in this great journey of capture and enslavement, Sennacherib the conqueror has come across a little kingdom called Judah. This kingdom revolves around the hub of a city that people call Jerusalem. And Sennacherib's military intelligence tells him that Judah is ruled by a man by the name of Hezekiah. They say he is a godly man who came to the throne when he was very young. Judah shows signs of having been through great unrest and civil discord. Many of the previous rulers of Judah ruled foolishly and weakened a once proud and powerful state. But Hezekiah is different. He has shown the same regard for reform and spiritual rule as Sennacherib has for conquest and domination. The people of Judah have an ancient tradition they call the Passover. Under past rulers, this practice has been virtually discarded and completely forgotten. But Hezekiah has reclaimed it, and he lifted it to its original prominence and place of spiritual significance. He has pointed the people back to the temple and the work of the priests and of godly sacrifice. He has been absolutely intolerant toward idols and pagan practices that are inconsistent with God. And the shrines and statues have been toppled and smashed during his regime. King Hezekiah is an interesting man. He is a foe Sennacherib cannot take for granted. The Assyrian monarch has already conquered Israel, the kingdom to the north, that was once part of a unified nation that included Judah. The inhabitants of Israel have been conquered, they've been shackled, and they've been marched off in captivity to spend the rest of their lives in slavery. As word of this has spread south towards Judah like wildfire, the people of Judah now realize the ravaging, merciless foes and forces of Sennacherib are marching toward Egypt at that very moment, aiming towards them, and Judah lies squarely in their path. Confrontation is a certainty, and destruction is almost as sure. Soon the Assyrian troops surround the walls of Jerusalem. Their foreign voices can be heard outside the gates, hurling ridicules and threats. We've heard about your God that you serve. We're here to find out how special he is. Why don't you send him out to defend you? We've destroyed many tribes and none of their gods put up a fight. They also attempt a very shrewd maneuver. They speak directly to the people of Jerusalem and not their king. In 2 Kings 18, says, thus says the king, who is Sennacherib, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. Oh, Satan, you deceiver. And every one of you eat from his own vine and every one from his own fig tree and every one of you drink the water of his own cistern. Words from the devil. 
And he goes on and says, never mind what your leaders say. It's a line as old as the snake in the garden. Kind of like those bumper stickers we read. Question authority, ignore your leader. Do what's right in your own eyes. The Assyrians especially target Hezekiah's idea that God should be trusted and obeyed. They kind of say, Hezekiah and his faith are naive. But the policy of King Hezekiah is not to deal with terrorists, to ignore the taunting outside the gate. But Jerusalem has something very interesting about it. It has prophets. Right now, there happen to be two very effective prophets named Micah and Isaiah in Jerusalem. King Hezekiah leans on them. And he's now given a word of encouragement through Isaiah, who begins by saying, relax. He goes on and says, God says that everything is under control and you're doing the right thing in ignoring the challenges of Sennacherib's men. Don't worry about him. For he has blasphemed the name of God and he will be dealt with. Sennacherib will hear rumors that turn him homeward and there he will die by his own sword. The bottom line? It may look bad, King Hezekiah. You may see your city surrounded, but seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. See what your God is doing? He is still in control. The blasphemy of Sennacherib is this. He has mixed the name of the one true God with all the names of all the false ones in that part of the world. He has broken one of the highest and holiest of commandments, defaming the name that is above every other name. Can I just say, don't do that? His own mouth has sealed his fate. A few days later, messengers come running into Hezekiah holding a letter from Sennacherib. It's not a very polite letter. It is filled with ugly threats and details about how the people of Judah will be destroyed. And the king of Judah does something very interesting. You might take note. He carries the letter with him to the temple. And he spreads the letter out before him and before God and says, Read this, Lord. I don't know about you, but I felt like this before. We've had problems within the church, within personal lives, and I'm sure you have too. You, need, you needed to do something very similar to this. The problem is so great and terrifying that all we can do is run to God. Lay it all before him and say, look, God, look what I'm facing. So Hezekiah spreads the menacing letter before, before God. He says, well, Lord... But his prayer, I think, is much more eloquent than that. Let me read it to you in 2 Kings 19, 19. It says, Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. See, Hezekiah realizes the true issue. Now hear this. 
Hear this in your situations, in our national situations. He realizes the true issue, that the power and sovereignty of God have been challenged. Not a good thing. So the king leaves it all with God. He walks back to his palace, passing by the walls where the foreign soldiers are hurling insults at him, and he waits. It's all, the, it's all that he can do. Wait and pray and have faith. He knows that at midnight, the attack will come. And so the ominous moments and seconds and minutes tick by. But that night, a miracle occurred. God sent down an angel to deal with the besieging army. One angel, one night. And the mighty army was no more. In one night, God executes 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And when the break of day comes, the men of Judah return to their posts and they can't believe what's laid out before them. Acres of Assyrian soldiers, no, no longer ridiculing, no longer frightening, imposing, throwing, hurling threats at them. It's a landscape of death. The Lord has taken up the challenge of Sennacherib and his men, and God always wins. Many people would have laughed at the seeming folly of Hezekiah, hurrying to the temple of God to show God a threatening letter. But this leader lays out his burdens before the Lord, and the Lord lays out his response outside the gates. It's just that simple. The citizens of Judah quickly realized that this day will be forever celebrated in the history of their nation, which it has been. It is a red-letter day. And now a red-letter psalm is penned to commemorate it. Don't get excited on me. We're just getting to the good part. So what happens, Psalm 46 comes into the scene. It towers over us as kind of a biblical monument, greater than the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Memorial, any memorial. It's a monument beyond monuments. It's a monument to the awesome and limitless power of God. And like all monuments, it has the function of helping us to remember something precious and sustaining, that no barrier is too great for God to overcome. A city surrounded by an entrenched army inches from destruction by a mighty army cannot be of any great concern for the God who has set the galaxies in space or the one who created and continues to, to sustain the world. Kings and armies seem like ju juggernauts to us, but they're nothing in the great scheme of God. The Greeks, the Romans, the Assyrians, the Babylonians all seemed invincible during their time. They're now more than a colorful storyline. And God's strength has never waned or diminished. This psalm, Psalm 46, can offer all of us hope, comfort, and assurance. It actually radically realigns our perspective. It shows me that with God, all things are possible. It persuades me that victory is always within reach for anyone who is willing to spread out their concerns before God. 
It is not the might of the enemy, but the strength of God's power that always wins the day. Psalms 46 is divided into three parts. I'm going to take them now. We're going to go through them very quickly. Each, each part is ended with selah. It's like a stanza. It's like a verse. I should probably sing it. I had the, I had the same response first service. I'll, I'll do some singing, but I'm going to read it first. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land. Excuse me, I'm in the wrong psalm. That's a good one too. Wow, my, my Bible changed. Here it is. I like that one too. That's another story I gotta tell you. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed. And though the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah. First verse. He's saying this. When trouble comes, go to your refuge. Come on, people, go to your refuge. Three parts of this refuge. First of all, our God is a personal refuge. A refuge is a quiet place to go for protection. Hezekiah finds refuge in the temple. The mighty God of creation is our refuge. And we can go quietly to him for protection. Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath you are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you. Psalm 91, 2, I will say of the Lord, He's my refuge and my fortress, my God and him I will trust. Psalms 18, 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, and whom I will trust. Come on, these words are penned by people who have experienced it. God is your guaranteed refuge. You know, we try many alternatives in our lives, but only God comes up. Let me tell you a story. October 31st, 1517. It's often called the 4th of July of Protestantism. On that day, a quiet, obscure monk named Martin Luther nailed a parchment to the door of the University of Wittenberg in eastern Germany. His document contained 95 theses or points of debate. I know this story very well. My grandfather used to take films around the Northwest, Christian films. When I was 10, 11, and 12, I would go everywhere he would go, and he would show this Martin Luther film to everyone who would watch it. I'll never forget, two and a half hour film. And when it gets to the highlight, Martin Luther says, here I stand, I can do no other. And it showed the firmness of Martin Luther's stability. Recently, my, well it's been a few years ago, my mom came to me and said, I think you're gonna want something, Ken. She hands me this box Within the box is the film that my grandfather would take all around the Northwest called Martin Luther. I have that in my possession. So I know this story very well. I've watched it scores of times. The great idea at the center of this 95 Theses was salvation by faith, not by works. 
But there were also other wonderful ideas that rose out of the Protestant Reformation. One of these was the rediscovery of congregational singing. You think you're doing something that's happened since beginning? No, not really. It kind of went out for a while. Luther had strong convictions about the power of sacred music. He said, if any man despises music, as all fanatics do, for him I have no liking. For music is a gift and grace of God, not an invention of men. He also said, the devil, the originator of sorrowful anxieties and restless troubles, flees before the sound of music almost as much as before the word of God. We saw that this morning. You felt it. Which hymn was most central to the Reformation? Do you know? A mighty fortress is our God. I remember singing that as a kid. I remember the organ starting. This song was just so deep. And I could feel the pillars of, of history underneath me. Because a mighty fortress is our God is taken from Psalm 46. It was written by Martin Luther. When difficulty or discouragement came upon Luther and his friend Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther would always say, Philip, let's go sing the 46th Psalm. You'll find the Psalm engraved on his tomb. So our God is a personal refuge. Our God is also a powerful and accessible refuge. He's a very present help in time of trouble. Trouble means tight places. Who hasn't been in tight places? We, we, we speak of being between a rock and a hard place. That's a tight place. We have no room to maneuver. Very present conveys the idea that God is easy to find. He is as real, as much there with you as he could possibly be. You know, when tight times come, when trouble comes, some of your friends tend to run away. God doesn't. When we're in tight places, he comes even tighter still. Exodus 33, 14 says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. We felt his presence this morning. He's coming to become close, close to us. Thirdly, our God is a permanent refuge. He's a personal refuge. He's an accessible, powerful refuge. He's a permanent refuge. He's in what I call, God is an ageless refuge. He's there at all times for all generations. The psalmist talks about the metaphor of the earth being moved and being carried away or washed away. There is no more ageless, permanent thing than the earth. But what if the earth were to crumble? we would still have no reason for anxiety. This is a picture of a land in upheaval that we're not to fear insurrections, invasions, natural disasters, never fear. The world may be ancient, but God is ageless. Our refuge in God is so secure that we have nothing to fear though invasions come. And though this happens, we can retreat to our refuge who is awesome, powerful, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. I told you I'd sing. Can I tell you this? 
Take courage. God has not changed. He's not changed. He has not changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he did it for, for Hezekiah, he will do it for you. Secondly, the second stanza. Let me read it to you. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. Ooh. What does that say to us? Secondly, when trouble comes, rediscover your strength. In other words, we have a secret power within us. In ancient times, the centuries of a, of a city would bring news of approaching invaders. The city walls would quickly be fortified and everyone would seek safety within the walls of the city. Do you know the greatest fear among people during this time? The people most feared being cut off from their supply of water and food. So in advance of the arrival of the Assyrians of Jerusalem, or at Jerusalem, Hezekiah had some time to prepare his defenses. In the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem, there bubbled a deep spring called Gehon. It provided the water supply for Jerusalem, so it was an enormous strategic importance. Hezekiah knew that above all cost, it must be protected. So he redirected the spring through a conduit that was 1,777 feet long, hewn out of solid rock. He brought the spring waters beneath the walls of Jerusalem into a reservoir in the middle of the city. Then he covered up all traces of the spring in such a way that Sennacherib could not see it. Throughout the fearful siege, a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God was present. Without that hidden river, Jerusalem would have fallen, not from the strength of Sennacherib's army, but from weakness and failure within without food and water. God's spirit is our river. It flows under all the attacks of the enemy. It's ever present to refresh us, cleanse us, strengthen us, give us life. He is the eternal spring that never runs dry. John seven thirty seven. if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can I tell you, the Holy Spirit of God within you is a secret fountain of life, giving water that the devil cannot restrict. So we have a secret power, but we also have a secret person within us. God is in the midst of her, it says. She shall not be moved. Here I stand, I can do no other. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Just at the break of dawn. You ever notice God likes the break of dawn? He just kind of waits and waits and waits, and then the break of dawn, he lets it all hang out. God did certainly help her. The armies of Judah may have been outnumbered and out-armored, but there was one warrior who tilted the scales toward a route of the Assyrians. The Actually, Assyria was defeated before they left Assyria. Where two or three of us are gathered in his name, there he is. Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord stepped, I love this, the Lord stepped into time and space. Out of eternity into time and space. 
like that mysterious fourth person in Nebuchadnezzar's furnace in the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were marching into the furnace to await the flames. But who was that fourth person in the fire? He was like the Son of God. He stepped out of eternity into time and space. He was, that was the Son of God before he was experienced in the New Testament. He was a theophany. It was a pre-existent manifestation of Jesus himself. Can God do that? Oh, yeah, I think he can do that. We think, well, that's not theologically correct. doesn't matter what you think. The Lord occupied the fires with his children. We are safer in raging flames sheltered in his arms than in the coolest and calmest climate without him. He is with us. Hmm. Last stanza. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Those two phrases I'm going to explain in just a minute. The last point is this, in this last stanza. When trouble comes, redirect your thoughts. The first thing you have to do in redirecting your thoughts, you have to review the works of the Lord. In times of trouble, we are reminded that our thought patterns are crucial. I'm telling you, your thinking is very crucial. The mind is a powerful element in our armory. Any soldier will tell you that the moment the enemy can be demoralized, he's beaten. In this spiritual realm, we must go into the battle with our thoughts fixed on God. Come behold the works of the Lord. The God of yesterday is the God of today. If we want to know what to expect from him, all we have to do is review his record. Come on. Remember God's works. The same God who sustained you in the past, who brought you victoriously through troubles, is the God who stands with you here and now. In the midst of a new challenge, God doesn't change. He's still there. The mass destruction of the enemy in Psalm 46 became kind of a memory monument set up. It was so tall that it would never be forgotten. That's why it was penned and written. Parents would tell their children, this is in Judah, parents would tell their children, who would tell their children, who would tell their children. They often told the story of the death of the Assyrian army. The people of God could always look back and say, remember how God slew the Assyrians? That's what I think we need to start saying. Remember how God slew the Assyrians? Whenever you have a hard time, remember how God slew the Assyrians? This was their memorial monument. Surely he is among us. 
Surely he will protect us. The devil likes to whisper in your ear. This new trouble is the end of the world. You've never seen anything like this before. God has never encountered this before. He'll whisper in your ear all of these lies. He used to whisper in my ear. When I first started preaching, he would always whisper, that's the stupidest message I've ever heard. (laughs) Really, you're a stupid preacher. You're not good at all. And then I read John 8. He's a liar and the father of lies. So I turned it around. Well, if he thinks I'm a bad preacher, I must be the best preacher in the world. And so I started believing that. I'm not, I don't think I'm the best preacher in the world, but if he was lying to me, I'm going to tell him the other side. And guess what? He stopped saying it. If you want to stop the enemy's voice, start believing the other. The the devil will tell you that God has forgotten you. That you're all alone against the forces that surround you. But from the victorious perspective of heaven, today's trouble is but a blip on the eternal horizon. And is given to boost you toward the place where you will have ultimate overcoming power. Gird yourself against the foe with a weapon of the memory of your past victories and the memory of scripture victories. With your Bible in hand, review the mighty works of God. Underline it. Read it. Say it. Declare it. So we review the works of the Lord and then we, we, we reclaim the words of the Lord. I close with this. Be still and know that I am God. This is a call to believe. He's telling us to be still so we can hear his important words being spoken to us. But we can't hear him. We're too busy working, playing, squabbling, arguing, doing everything but listening. So he cries out to us to slow down, silence your voices and listen. A refuge is a place of quietness. When we seek safety, silence is a friend. It hides us from the enemy and allows us to listen for important information and gives us the opportunity to regather our strength. We're to be quiet so we can rediscover him, his person, his plans, his presence. You you rediscovered some of his presence this morning. I felt God just, whoa. He was showing you how powerful he was today. And for the second time, the psalmist says this in the third stanza. He says, the Lord of hosts is with us. Did you hear what that says? The Lord of hosts is with us. Who in the world is the Lord of hosts? Lord Sabaoth, the captain of the armies of heaven. Whenever the Bible says the Lord of hosts, watch out. He's on the move. God is going to show himself powerful. God, and I'm telling you right now, the Lord of hosts is in the world right now. 
Lord Sabaoth is saying, watch out, watch for what I will do. Those who have, who have decried my name and who've come against me, I will, I will bring justice. I will expose and I will deliver you from them. Those who are coming against the church and Christians right now, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies. Now this is quite significant because all that was needed with the Assyrians was one angel. But we have the Lord of hosts with us. Come on. We're not limited to one angel. We have the Lord of them all. He's with us. The Psalm also says this, and I close with this. The Psalm also says the second time, the God of Jacob is our refuge. What does that mean? Well, the God who met Jacob, you remember Jacob? The God who met Jacob when he had nothing and deserved nothing, who met Jacob in his backslidings and all his failures, he was a deceiver, who took that deceitful shepherd into his embrace and changed him into Israel. Jacob became Israel. He was renamed Israel, the father of all of Israel. God reclaimed him. God renamed him. That same God is with us. Amen. When you're nothing and you deserve nothing, when you have all of your failures in your face, he's with us even then. God is enough. God is sufficient. God is in control. He holds the destiny of the galaxies in his hand. Oh. Winston, we were talking about the greatness and goodness of God on the radio the other day. And when I started talking about the greatness of God with the galaxies and the stars, and do you know when the stars were created, they sang to each other? Go to the book of Job. They sang to each other in creation. He holds the galaxies in his hands and at the same time, he knows the precise number of hairs on your head even when it's getting smaller. He has preserved his people time and time again. He will continue to preserve us. He's performed miracles on battlefields and cattle fields. He's among prophets and priests and even plumbers. But above all else, he loves you. And he chose to measure that love, not just in words, but in blood. Now, the question is, would such a love from God cause you to suffer without a purpose? Would such a love neglect to have a wonderfully happy ending lying in wait for you? God has never run away from you. So please, people, don't run away from him. Run into his waiting arms. He is your refuge. He's your city wall. Your cool and refreshing stream that comes under the attacks of the enemy. He's your impenetrable defense from the enemy. He is a very present help in time of trouble. That's our God. That's who we see in Psalm 46. That's who's present in the world right now. He came here today to say, I'm still here. Your trouble is nothing for me.
Would you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.